0: Our scripture reading of the sermon is from Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants, and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And be seated. There was a a young boy who went by the name Edward. Edward was not an ordinary boy. His last name was Tudor. And he lived long ago, the son of King Henry VIII and the male heir to the throne. Edward was also the subject matter, the key character in story that Mark Twain wrote generations later that some of you have read or maybe seen the film of the, the prince, Edward and the pauper. A story, a fascinating story where, where uh, the prince says to himself and wondering out loud, what would it like be like to live an ordinary life? And you know that part of the story where Edward and the street. Child swap clothes and swap places, and for and for a while, Edward walks the streets uh, in a disguise of sorts. Not people not recognizing who it was, and he he did that uh, to um, to not ashamed or embarrass those he was talking to, but out of a curiosity of what it was like, and nobody caught on. Nobody caught on because when they looked at the figure and the dusty face and the clothes, they did not associate him with the kingdom and the prince. Uh, just they didn't connect the dots. They, they didn't see clearly and, and they didn't recognize him for who he was. Kind of like the way we do something very similar. It takes an ability in that case to to recognize what's going on, to recognize what's in front of you that uh, many of us uh, stumble on as well. Sometimes it's as simple as recognizing the value of an item that we have in our hands that is not worth what the world says it's worth, or maybe it's worth more than the world says it is, not being able to recognize things as they really are. We have a difficulty assigning value in the same way that the friends of the prince really didn't have the ability or maybe the willingness to probe and to ask and to weigh and then to be able to assign value. It could be that had they done so, they might have blown his cover. If they had asked the right questions or if they had zeroed in and and paid some attention that they weren't paying. Uh, And that's kind of the story that Mark Twain made famous, but it's also a window into uh, our lives and this very text where there's a group of people who didn't ask the right questions. And whether it was their blindness or their unwillingness, didn't recognize who it is standing before them. This story starts with, um, as we've read, it starts with an exchange. There's an an unanswered question and a a rejected authority. Uh, Then it moves into an an account of an honorable owner and a rejected son. And it concludes with a picture of a new community that's built upon a rejected stone. That's what we're going to do with the time that we have here First, we're going to look at this unanswered question, this exchange between these religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, uh, religious leaders. These are the ones who, we don't see the word here, but they're representatives of the Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish Supreme Court and legislative body in Judea during this Roman period. The 71 that gathered together to determine what life was going to be like for the people of God. And they gathered together uh, with, these, with this fresh set of questions. We touched on it a bit last week, and here we are, where Jesus has entered the temple precinct. Mark tells us that it was on the first day of the week that he entered in where that, that exchange took place that we discussed, discussed last week. But he continues this pattern of teaching daily, and they're watching this, and they go to him, and they say, Tell us, O wise one. By what authority do you stand before this people? Who gave you this authority? That's their question that they've posed to Jesus. And his response makes us kind of scratch our heads a little bit. It's a puzzling response. He didn't say what he had said earlier in his three-year public ministry. We read it in John chapter 8. He could have said, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. He didn't say that. And he didn't say what he would say a few days later in this very same week, which we read about in John 12, where he says, I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Whatever I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. He could have said that. But didn't. Instead, he answers their question with a question. A probing question that exposes some things. And he asks them about the authority of John the Baptist. His role and their response to John who had preceded him. He asks them a question that really trips them up. You you see them huddle. (laughs) They've heard the question and then there's a huddle. Uh, We don't know how many people huddled, but they talked among themselves for a bit of time, and they came back and said words that they were very reluctant to use and didn't use very often. The religious officials said, we don't know. We don't know was their way out of the little dilemma that they recognized they were in. They didn't answer Jesus Again, in ways that puzzle us, says, well, I'm not going to answer you either. <laughs> I won't tell you about what authority. Uh, the story is not about Jesus' ability of, uh, to outwit people in argument. That's not what this is about. It's about those individuals, those, uh, how the questioners were unwilling to admit divine authority when they saw it, as others around them were doing. They were the ones that were unwilling to admit it, and they couldn't make up their minds what to do in the situation. That's what the story is about. And Jesus has led them into this. As, as they've opened the door, he walks through it. <clears throat> the, the fact is, uh, their dilemma is a bit like ours. Or I'll speak for myself. And maybe you. <laughs> because there are times when I'm really not sure what to do with this clear divine authority that appears and shows up uh, I wrestle and maybe you do too with what do I do with what God has laid out and declared to be true aren't there times when I kind of brush it aside or look for a third option uh, we're like that and it may be that it, that it costs more or seems to cost more than, than I'm willing to part with do you find yourself there sometimes, unwilling to give what God requires, not sure I'm willing to pay that high price. We waver, or I do, and maybe you do too, between the clarity of God's Word and the pull of our own hearts and our own wills. Kind of like, maybe like W.C. Fields. Some of you are old enough to remember W.C. Fields, who, a lifelong agnostic near the end of his life, <coughs> was surprised by a visitor, an actor friend, who entered the room and, and saw W.C. Fields with an open Bible, which was news. <laughs> there was W.C. Fields with a Bible, and he said, whoa, what, what's this? He saw, looking for loopholes, looking for loopholes. Um, he said that humorously. We recognize it. But he said it humorously, but it was also tragically, because he said that on the very day that he died. Well, Jesus walks through the door that of wavering religious officials, they've opened a door and he walks through it with, their, with a story of intrigue, with a story that sounds familiar at first. It's the story that we read earlier or was read to us from the Old Testament, that Isaiah 5 passage. And take a look at that, or think about that with me for just a moment. This is the story that they thought they were hearing when Jesus talks about a vineyard. It was a story that was quite known. They learned it, and they used it in their synagogue worship, That those verses from Isaiah 5 that we read this morning. A story about a vineyard where that's identified as Israel, and a, a vineyard where... Choice vines, is the words that we read, were planted, but it wasn't choice grapes that came forth. It was wild grapes. How you get from choice vines to wild grapes is a story in itself. But that's what's going on there, and that's the story that they knew. And what they knew was what God did about it. He said, this is what I will do with my vineyard. I will tear down the walls that have kept out the predators I will, I will undo what has been done, and it will go to ruin. This vineyard that is mine, this vineyard that I have established, will be destroyed. They knew that. And that's the story they thought they were hearing referred to when Jesus tells his own story. They, they landed on that passage as one of as, as one part of this grand story of God's work of establishing a people who was known. When you read Isaiah 5 in its context, and the whole of Isaiah and the whole of the scriptures, this story of a, of a people being a treasured possession was central to the understanding of the people of God as they understood who they were. Treasured possession. Out of all that I have made, God says. You are special. You are my treasured, out of all peoples, you are my treasured possession. It is for you and it is with you and it is out of a love for you that I have made you my own and declared that it is in you and through you that the new world to come will be born. They knew that. They knew the story in Isaiah 5, but they also knew the rest of Isaiah (laughs) Isaiah 5, that occurs pretty early on in a book with 66 chapters. And they know that this story of a vineyard being identified as Israel, the Jewish people being being laid aside and abandoned, was not the end of the story. There's a great story that unfolds as you you read through Isaiah, and it's filled with hope. And it's defined them again, and and it's given them a poise to live in this time when Rome is in... Is imposing their wills. And here's a people saying, We have a God, we have a promise, and we have a land that will be ours, and this is it. So Jesus tells this story. And he tells a story about a vineyard owner who lives far away, but has purchased land, has placed the walls around it, he's provided the watchtower, which became the home for the tenants. He's hired the tenants, and he's entered into an agreement with them that after four years, and that's what it took for a a grape harvest, a grape to, to yield its harvest, a grape planting took four years, and the fifth year was when the money began to roll in. Well, some time has gone by, and the owner knows that the contract spells out that the rent to be paid to the distant vineyard owner is clearly stated. And so he sends a servant to collect that rent in the form of grapes. And you saw and heard the story of what was happening. The first one was sent away, was banished, was thrown out. The same with the second. And the same with the third. And as you, if you read it carefully, you see there's some increasing hostility. They had worse treatment with each visit. And so what will the vine the vineyard owner do? He says, "I know what, I will send my son and they will respect him." That's actually not a strong enough word uh, for us to understand. In that culture, it was it was an obligation to not only respect but to honor those that were visiting and that were coming it was an honor that was owed to in this case the son of the land of the owner so i will send my son and certainly they will respect and honor him but that's not what happened either is it just as they had killed the servants as Jesus had said earlier in Luke, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Signifying that the servants in this little parable that Jesus tells has in mind the prophets that, that God has sent to his people who've been stoned and killed. And in the same way, in the like manner, I will send my son. It's striking That the vineyard owner, the one who can exact vengeance on his enemies, and at this point, that's what they are. The one who can exact vengeance chooses to do something startlingly different. Rather than sending in the troops to reclaim that zone and to banish those tenants, he sends his son with the hopes that his presence might stir in them something noble. He goes back unarmed. He goes back with an offer. And he goes back with an expectation that these people would step up to the plate. The, the, the vineyard owner who, diz, who, do, who sends his son does something remarkably noble. Which is why this parable really is about him more than it is the tenants. It's about his, his movement toward a people that have rejected his servants and tossed them aside. And he sends his son in their place. There's a story that has been confirmed, was confirmed years later by a high-ranking American intelligence official who worked and served in Jordan at the time this story that I'm about to tell occurred. One night in the early 1980s, King Hussein, some of you remember that name and that figure, King Hussein uh, was informed by his security police that there was a group of 75 Jordanian army officers gathered in a nearby barracks plotting a military overthrow of the kingdom at that very moment. And the security officers asked the king for permission to surround the barracks to arrest the, 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 the threat being plotted, arrest those men, and to put an end to what would be a tragic and, and harrowing event. Uh, after a somber po- Pause. King Hussein looked at his intelligence officer and said, send me a helicopter, bring a helicopter here. And moments later, after the helicopter arrived, landed on the roof of that barracks. And he turned to the pilot of the, of the helicopter and said, if you hear gunshots, fly away immediately. And with the helicopter there waiting, the king walked down two flights of stairs into the room that these 75 had gathered, unarmed. And when he said to them in a quiet voice, gentlemen, it has come to my attention that you are meeting here tonight to finalize your plans to overthrow the government, to take over the country and install a military dictator. If you do this, the army will break apart The country will be plunged into civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There is no need for this. Kill me and proceed. That way only one man will die. And the room was this silent for a while. And after a moment of stunned silence, the group of 75, as one, rushed to the king and kissed his hand and his feet and pledged a lifetime of loyalty to him. The king opted for total vulnerability and acted nobly by doing so. And by what he did, he fanned into flame the dying embers of the rebel's sense of honor. Like the army plotters before King Hussein, the vineyard owner's hope is that the violent men in the vineyard will sense the indestructible nobility of the owner who sends his beloved son alone and unarmed. That's what occurs in the heart and the mind of a noble vineyard owner. If I send my son, it will, it will awaken them to the reality in which they are living. It will s- capture their imagination and direct their steps. Uh, the story implies that Jesus tells that had they done so, had they paid the rent to the son, that amnesty would have been granted and things restored But that's not what occurred. We don't know for sure, but when they saw the sun coming in the story, it may be that they assumed, oh, the owner has died. This is the only heir, this is the only one standing in the way of our ownership. And the fact of the matter was, and the law of the land was, after three years of occupying a piece of property, it became yours in that land, in that law if there was no other rightful owner coming forth. And so here is the last object, a obstacle. And in the story, they take the life of the son, and then Jesus turns to the Sanhedrin officials and says, what would the landlord do? He, he finally now poses another question that they will eventually answer. <laughs> Because Jesus answers the question for them and says, here's what the landlord will do. He will take that vineyard and he will scatter those tenants and he will give the vineyard to new owners. And that's when they speak up. May it never be. (laughs) No way. That's not how this story goes. That's not the promise God made to Abraham and to us. God would never turn his back on his people and give this land to another group of vineyard owners. He would not do that. It's real clear that they knew by this point that the story was about them. And they understood that there was something before them that they then had to deal with. And Jesus picks up on that and he moves right in. It's interesting that the word sun and stone sound alike in Hebrew and Aramaic. The language in Greek, the, the, the words there, they sound alike. But I'm not sure it was word association that's going on here. It's, it's, the connector piece in this is the sun that was rejected and the story he is about to remind them of from Psalm 118 is about a stone that was rejected. They knew Psalm 118 as well. They used that in their worship. They were using it this week in their celebration of Passover. And so Jesus connects the dots and says, as those tenants rejected the Son in the story, there's a stone that is being rejected in your very presence he pulls this language from Isaiah 8. It's a, it's a stone of stumbling we read about. It's a stone that, that was intended to, to be a part of the temple. And you can see the, the builders, the workers on the construction of the temple, they go through a pile of stone marking some as acceptable and others not. This is one of those stones that was cast aside. And Jesus said that stone, the rejected stone, As you have rejected the sun, as those vineyard owners rejected the sun, those gathered here are rejecting what will be the cornerstone. The very cornerstone of the temple in which heaven and earth meet, where this new community is being formed. Jesus looked directly at them when he said this. And he draws them out and he helps them understand and he poses to them that that there is a story being played out. Everyone who falls means everyone who stumbles at and rejects Jesus as the Messiah. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense is what Peter calls it in 1 Peter 2. When it falls on anyone, points to the day that Christ does come back in judgment. You see, the noble vineyard... Owner has a patience that does end. Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. There's this remarkable thing going on. They have heard this story, this song that they know from Isaiah five, and they've heard and, st- and they watch that play out. There's a vineyard that the wall is torn down, the protection is gone, the rain stops, and the vineyard is destroyed. And what's standing before them there is the chief cornerstone, the cornerstone who looks to them and says, "As you are about to reject me, no." That the cornerstone of the foundation of the temple is being laid. And it's not a vineyard from Isaiah 5 that is crushed and destroyed. It's me, the Son, the one who comes to you. I will be crushed, I will be destroyed. And disciples had a hard time with His increasing talk about His death. They really did, and so would we. Because what they did not see is what we can, by faith, begin to see and begin to taste. That it was through His death, through Him being rejected. First, His authority, and then rejected this figure in a parable, the rejected son who was killed by the tenants, about to be killed by the hands of the religious officials and the Romans who would be the rejected stone. But it's not the end of the story. The religious officials understood that Isaiah 5 was not the end of the story, and Jesus is standing before them to say, and the crucifixion that you're about to witness and partake in is not the end of the story. There is a grand story that is being played out, and it comes to us through the rejected one, the one who's rejected and tossed aside the one who would die, the one who would be crucified, the one who would then be raised and ascended and put at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, where He reigns and rules today, not as a rejected stone, but as the cornerstone of the world to come, of the church, of those who put their, their faith and their trust in Him. Who by coming to him, step into this thing that God has promised to do. And that is to to bring heaven and earth together. And here we are and here we sit. Before the one who was crushed. The one who was rejected. But like Isaiah 5, that's not the end of the story. And read Isaiah sometime. See how that story points to this story and how Christ standing in front of religious officials stands in front of us today and says, look to me. Don't miss out on who's looking at you. Edward exchanged clothes, the little boy exchanged clothes. And he made his way kind of disguised. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, did not exchange clothes, but he did take on flesh. He did take on humanity. And we can begin to understand why religious officials did not recognize him as the God who made the world. We have that problem. (laughs) But the fact is through the eyes of faith and what we read about in Luke 24 in the breaking of the bread they begin to recognize the identity of who this one is. And that's what occurs when we come to this table today. It's in the breaking of the bread that they recognize Jesus. And so here we are recognizing that Jesus' death is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of a story that has no end. These words from the Belgic Confession are fascinating, and I'll close with this. The church has existed from the beginning of the world and will last until the end. That appears from the fact that Christ is the eternal king, from which it follows that he cannot be without subjects. And this holy church... Is preserved by God against the rage of the whole world. It shall never be destroyed, even though for a while it may appear very small and may even seem to be snuffed out. And the church is not snuffed out because Christ lives. And by faith, He is ours. And we are His, His vineyard, in which choice vines produce choice grapes, clothed with a righteousness that is not our own, but given to us and received by faith. Pray with me. Father, hear our prayer. As we sit in this room this day, it is with our eyes glancing toward you. And Father, we need the help of your Spirit to recognize you for who you are. We are blind, we are, sl- we are slow, and we don't see the fullness of all that you are. But as we come to this table, we have a glimpse that we did not have Apart from that, Lord, in the breaking of the bread today, would you show us yourself? Would you show us not only yourself, but you show us ourselves in that story as, as those that make up your vineyard? Children, sons, and daughters of the living God, made so by the finished work of Christ, our Redeemer. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.